Hello, Liz. Hey, Tom. How are you? Your sound is amazing. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, how is that possible? Wow. Wow. Miraculously. Based on <laughs> feedback from people that heard the pilot, <laughs> I thought it was a necessary prerequisite to record another podcast, but to make sure that your audio quality was better. I appreciate the advantage. Thank you. Not a problem. And you're fully recovered as well from what you had. Yeah, I am. Um, I think I still sound like I have a cold and it's kind of going around, but <laughs> much better than I was. And like I said, bef you know, in the past when I had gotten to that point and then I would get up to teach or be at a conference and give a talk, then I would completely be without a voice yes. for a day or two. So I just didn't want to risk it. <laughs> so, But yes, it's it's back. I'm better. And for regular listeners, the frequency of this recording should be once every other week, typically. Mm -hmm. If either of us are ill or something comes up or what have you, there may be an additional week thrown in there. And I've got That's... to apologize this evening because for some reason, San Jose, what's it called? Anyway, the San Jose airport, they're rerouting all the flights over my oh. house. Oh, really? So hopefully the audio quality will be good on my end. Oh, but interesting. I received a lot of feedback from the pilot recording. And the main mm -hmm. feedback that I've run with is this notion that there's still a need for folks who want a Biota podcast or want something similar to the old Biota podcasts. Mm. And also, I guess, the sense that we have a, a luxury to have that audience, although I think this might become something else. Hmm. Uh, but the need to provide a different level of um, interpretation, different level of kind of philosophical analysis and kind of a deeper dive than one may normally expect. So with Biota, mm -hmm. I had a relatively flexible kind of whimsical standard. We could take all callers and talk about, you know, whatever came through. Uh -huh. But I think the general interest or certainly the feedback that I received was that we have a still have an advanced audience through the Biota podcast and mm -hmm. they are looking for, you know, not necessarily artificial life, but certainly crossover discussions. And I wanted to talk a little bit this evening associated with some of my recent development with Noble Eight, but also, you know, any other topics you want to raise? Do you have any topics you want to kick off? Well, um, I actually just, I wanted to put a plug in for a book that I'm working on because I'm still looking for potential writers for it. And okay. it dawned on me that the, the topic of the book might be of interest to our listeners from several different angles. So it's going to be an anthology collection of chapters. Uh, the title of the book is Emer Emerging Technologies in Forensic Science. Ah. So I'm looking at um, anything from um, new ways of looking at DNA analysis, new ways of prosecuting criminals, um, it, greening the prison system. I mean, there's all sorts of different angles to take, but digital forensics, um, cyber, cyber crime, and those things, I think would appeal to a lot of our listeners. So, you know, if anybody's interested in learning more about the book or, or this is your field and you might want to contribute a chapter, I would say get in touch with me because it's, it's very much a work in progress. I'm still trying to make it come to fruition. I'm not sure whether you know this, but I used to write, and when I say I used to, I was about 15, from about, you know, probably from about 14, 15 through to about 18, mm -hmm. I wrote antiviral software, and ah. some of it was picked up by the Australian government. And it oh, was a pretty cool. strange period of time, because 
I realised by the time I turned about 18 that I couldn't go and continue on with writing antiviral software. There were about probably seven or eight people in the world who wrote antiviral software at the time. Mm. And I was kind of a a junior but slightly, you know, known quantity through that. And it was a very strange group of people. I met one of the (laughs) fellows in Malaysia. His name was Louis Hong Thong. And hmm. he wrote the antiviral software for the United Nations, wow. amongst others. I mean, the, the funny thing is that these antivirals... So you've got your kind of commercial-level, semantic, McAfee antiviral software, mm-hmm. and then you have specialist antiviral authors that are, like, a level above that, basically. Mm. Um, and typically, like, you know, work for large government institutions, these kind of things. And they were all nuts. They were all paranoid. <laughs> Louis Hong Thong, I was allowed to take his photograph provided I never showed anyone the photograph. And he's, wow. he was just a just a crazy paranoid guy. You know, he wouldn't tell me. He, he mentioned his daughter and then he said, but I can't tell you anything more about her because the secrecy has to remain hidden and all this kind of stuff. It was oh all my. the kind of classic bad spy novels yeah. kind of folk. Yeah, and you can understand how it happens, though. I mean, they, you know, if you think about that stuff all the time and you're trying to design the software to thwart those people, I I can easily see how that would become paranoia pretty quickly, you know? Yeah, Well, I mean, the strangest things happened when I started to write the software. I've written about some of this in a book called Field of Chaos. But, um, you know, I think, I can't recall how many, but I received probably two or three death threats through Mm. that period of time. And the family... My oh phone was kind of utilized, so either it was semantic or it was some crazy hacker or, you know, all <laughs> these kind of things. It was just a really very strange period of time in my life. And from that, I mean, the only thing I've taken from that is a good understanding of kind of computer organisms, which kind of, in fact, funnily enough, one of the simulations that I developed through that period to model how viruses spread was the agar, which was the agar simulation. They both had the same basis, which went mm. on to be the cognitive simulation in Noble 8. Okay. But yeah, computer forensics is an interesting field. I think it's probably been considerably mainstreamized in the more than 20 years since I was an antiviral software. Yeah, I mean, that would make for a cool chapter, though, a retrospective, or, yeah. you know, this is where it was 20 years ago, and this is what's around the corner. Yeah, you I should think, consider that. I, yeah, I could certainly, I mean, the main thing that I found was just, I, I guess I realized I couldn't have, like, a normal, like, late teens, early 20s lifestyle and still continue to write this antiviral software it was all too crazy i mean there were funnily Mm. enough i mean i was in high school at the time there were a couple of girls that thought oh he's a burgeoning capitalist you know (laughs) he's gonna make all this money and you know so i got a small interest from you know a small group (laughs) but it wasn't really the kind of thing where i could have gone on in you know even through my 20s with that kind of stuff you never know now you'll never know Oh, I know. See? I know I made the right choice. I really yeah. am very, very clear that the choice <laughs> that I made was the choice. It couldn't get any more, like, introverted and obscure, basically. And I think <laughs> the kind of people that maintain, the kind of people, I mean, you know McAfee. I mean, you know the story of McAfee, yes. right? I don't know the story of it, no. Well, you know who McAfee is, right? No, I only know the... No. So McAfee is actually a person. His name is John McAfee. We share a mutual friend, actually. And okay. um, uh, my my friend was an artist, or is an artist, and he he did a lot of murals for McAfee. Anyway, McAfee obviously cashed out of the antiviral software. I don't know, maybe twenty years ago, and sold his 
name to computer associates or whoever picked up McAfee initially. And um, he's a bit of a nut. He went down to Belize. He was accused of murdering this guy. He went on a kind of country-hopping tour of South America uh, last year and is now back in the U.S., it's not really clear no. what happened. I mean, obviously the guy's dead, um, yeah. who he was involved with, but that whole thing was kind of like, How was bizarre. it a setup? Or, but he's nuts. Wow. <laughs> and he's he... the most mainstream of the anti of, of the generation of antiviral yeah. authors that I had anything to do with. Oh, um, that's so weird. But he definitely got into it at the right time. Well, and yeah, in terms of being a made a ton of money. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. in terms of being a multimillionaire, but not in terms of maintaining one's sanity. So. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I mean, you know, my friends, my artist friend spent quite a bit of time with him. Although when all this initial stuff associated with the murder investigation and McAfee on the run came out, my friend was just like, eh, kind of expected this might happen. <laughs> wow. Just on the fringes, basically. Maybe it's just one of those things that makes you kind of nuts. I mean, yeah. you either wind up working for the CIA or you wind up crazy. Or yeah, both. Or both, yeah. Yeah, I, or both. I, I think the level of obsession and also the fact that there are... I mean, at the time that I wrote antiviral software, there were constantly new uh, viruses. And you're constantly trying to beat these algorithms. And in the process, you'd occasionally be contacted by, you know, what you'd call them virus authors or hackers or a variety of folk. And it was all very curious. Hmm. Um, But no, I'm I'm very pleased the decision I made. Netflix um, certainly keeps me on the straight and narrow. And I think, I mean... It's not something I would have uh, pursued through my 20s. After I met Louis yeah. Hong Thong, when I must have been 18 at the time, it seemed perfectly clear that if he was the most normal antiviral author that I could get access to, <laughs> that uh, this was just not a profession for me. There was <laughs> Too many nuts. There was an interesting... Actually, I, I used to stay with my grandparents in the summer months. My grandparents, my grandfather was a doctor, and my grandmother was... Uh, well, I mean, she basically invested money. And I pointed out mm-hmm. to them when I was about 15 that actually this antiviral thing could be quite lucrative. And, you know, there were plenty of examples of people who were already uh, doing it. And would they be interested in, you know, fronting a little money to start oh, a small company? Good idea. No, and they, they, weren't, they, they weren't interested. They hated computers. They thought I was going to oh end up a degenerate gosh. anyway. So, yeah, I've had a few stories like that. But that was one of the more curious ones because I think anyone else – well, certainly, for example, when I worked with the – I worked for the equivalent of the Department of Justice in Australia. And the guy who I worked with very closely um, was actually very nice to me. He thought I was, you know, an exceptional person who could do this amazing stuff. So Hmm. it was moderately good for my ego for a short period of time. (laughs) Right. um, Yeah, I I think, um, you know, I've I've made my choices and antiviral software wasn't one of them. I might consider writing a retrospective, but I don't really... I mean, I've got a lot of the old code and stuff, but I don't really... I don't know whether it's anything that would be applicable. Well, the the thing that's kind of cool about this book, I think, is that some of the chapters, just by the very nature of the topic of the book, are going to be speculative. Mm-hmm. So it's emerging technology. So I have a chemist who's talking about a procedure, and I'm going to leave it mysterious just to kind of build mystique around the book, but <laughs> he is talking about a procedure that he thinks should be used in every crime lab, you know, in the world. Mm-hmm. And I heard him talk about it at this conference in San Antonio. And it's it's really pretty common sense. And it's really pretty simple. It's not high tech. And it's something that once you hear it, you're like, wow, I can't believe they're not doing that already in crime labs. So it's almost something that he's made up. He's imagined and he's thought through it 
And it's it's speculative. It's like, you know, will people adopt this practice? Will they not? Mm-hmm. So that's what's kind of cool about the book. It's just ideas, um, uh, future ideas, hypotheses. So, you know, you could do something like, uh, given the nature of computers now, you know, where is cyber crime and, and cyber crime fighting headed? Mm-hmm. Like just a, a retrospective and then a forward-looking hypothesis mm. something like that that could be really cool yeah, i think i mean half the reason i got out of antiviral software writing was i started to realize that i could determine patterns in particular mm-hmm. infections and things like this and i it was on the kind of cusp of if i pursue this any further i will become louis hong thong so <laughs> but the thing that struck me from that was that uh, very similar to like sexually transmitted diseases, for example, these viruses were very good, um, almost like fingerprints of where information had been, where networks had connected, and these kind of things. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and I thought there was a lot more to that. I mean, this is really part of um, the book Field of Chaos, um, uh, which is still available on Amazon if people are interested. And th- this is a book that you wrote, or you wrote a chapter? No, this is a book I wrote. Um, oh, it, the yeah. first part of it is effectively speculative fiction but the second part of it is based on my experiences um, going to a kind of radicalized cyber hippie colony where the first section of the book had already disseminated amongst at least you know a small number of these kind of radical thinkers of kind of my generation um, oh. and yeah it's I don't know I mean it's something that I return to periodically just because it reminds me of a very short period in my life uh, but yeah, it's, I don't know, it was originally just one book and then I added the second book to it to make it more kind of standard novel length. Very uh, cool. I'm looking at it right now. And who is that on the cover with you? That's me and my friend uh, who went to the cyber hippie colony with me. Um, oh, wow. He's a kind of recurring character through the first part as well. How interesting. <laughs> is it sort of like um, an on-the-road meets cybercrime hippie kind colony? Of, it's got elements <laughs> of both. I think it's mainly... The, I mean, the, the takeaway from it, which is why I still support it in terms of keeping it out there, is it's just about not taking things too seriously. I mean, mm. I think this is a kind of... It's a theme through my life that I've tried to perpetuate, that whenever anyone starts looking at my stuff and getting slightly too obsessively interested... Mm-hmm. I just make the point that most of it's philosophical satire. Ah. And in this case, um, I mean, one of the individuals had taken things a bit too, well, to a slight extreme and kind of overdeveloped some of these things. And it's more, the second section is really more an analysis of him um, mm-hmm. in some regard. I mean, certainly my friend and I are more incidental characters through the second half. I'll get it on my Kindle. <laughs> I'm not sure how the Kindle version reads. I paid an artist to actually mm-hmm. create a comic book out of it about two years ago. Oh, um, good idea. And she got about a third of the way through it on the amount that I paid her. Oh, wow. And then I just decided that the project was... It just wasn't really working out. Like, uh-huh. the drawing was good in parts. I can actually, the PDF, the comic, is probably the best introduction, and that is uh, freely available, actually. It's in the Stone Ape feed, so I can pass you the link to that, and you can at oh, least cool. pick up the comic and see what you think of that before you make the expensive Kindle purchase. I know, it's two ninety nine. <laughs> I'm going to really think about that. Yeah, one. so... <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, I'll, I'll pass you the comic book first and see what you think of that. But the comic book just kind Perfect. of starts halfway through uh, and is more a kind of caricature of certain element. 
Oh, nice. So a topic that I did want to discuss this evening relates Mm -hmm. to some of the work that I've been doing recently with Noble Eight, but I also appreciate that our listeners come to this recording from a variety of sources, and you have a slightly advanced view of Noble Eight having worked or been the editor on a chapter of mine in Mm -hmm. uh, The Origins of Mine. Mm -hmm. So I thought I should probably take a step back and just explain what this Noble Eight thing is. Yes. So after I wrote antiviral software, I had a series of simulations that I had developed that did interesting things, this agar simulation was one of them. And because I was getting out of antiviral software very quickly, I met a fellow at a party who was a virtual reality guru in Australia at the time. And he said to me, oh, you should be developing virtual reality software. So I looked at the virtual reality offerings and the stuff that really interested me was more philosophical in nature. And because I was studying philosophy at the time and the the academics, the professors, were very negative towards any kind of computation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, an instigator who said to me, well, Tom, you know, you have the knowledge in computing, because obviously I've done a number of programs. Why don't you create a simulation to test philosophical principles? And I thought, well, that would be interesting. So mm-hmm. Noble initially existed as a landscape simulation that had a kind of biological ecosystem that Noble Apes could interact with, they could eat, they could move around. Every part of the island formation, which was the way it started, would be unique and different so there wouldn't be a problem with noble apes kind of wandering over different parts of the island and thinking they were in the same place because it all appeared unique Mm -hmm. and also an internal cognitive simulation that was based on the aforementioned agar simulation and really about two competing ideas one associated with a long-term desire i.e motivating desire either in places in space or places in time that the apes were kind of yearning for for a variety of reasons and then also fear which was a complete counteraction to the desire uh, and enabled them to flee rapidly if they saw some bushes moving or all this kind of stuff. Through this early development, and this was done in 1996, I realised that it would be impossible for me to describe the Nobelite simulation without some breaking of the historical anthropomorphic divide. And I don't really care anymore. So I talk about the noble apes as if they're entities, because oftentimes I can actually interrogate the noble apes far better than I can interrogate humans that interact with me. (laughs) I get more data from the noble apes. And for this reason, uh, I guess I'm in a somewhat extreme uh, pigeonholed aspect, but I don't really care about that because it's immaterial. Mm -hmm. I run the simulation, I do what I need to do. So Mm -hmm. for probably about until 2003... Uh, Noble Ape was a very simple kind of linear simulation that was originally written for very old computers and progressively modernised. And then Apple Computer picked up the simulation. Now, I was in pretty well constant development from 96 through to 2003, but Apple Mm. wanted to test certain processor metrics with Noble Ape. So they created this eight brain cycles per second metric, um, which they used to show improvements that could be done through the software and also utilising new processors that they were running with and this kind of stuff. Uh, In about 2005, this was picked up by Intel. And there was a fellow at Intel who developed... I mean, there there was a small team at Apple, um, probably about 10, maybe 15 engineers total, touched Noble Ape. But when it went to Intel, and it kind of continued on at Apple, and there were evangelists within Apple that promote Noble Ape. But when it went to Intel, it went to a team of about probably 20 engineers, and it was like an introduction to the team. So the manager of the team, when he first started, had first picked up the simulation from Apple. Uh, And I went and met with them in, I think, 2009, maybe, uh, and met all the engineers, including the manager who'd set up the team. And one of the engineers there had this idea that, or actually there was a movement to um, think of processing more in an atomic model. 
So rather than having these linear programs of code that were being executed, maybe even on separate processes or separate threads, it was about dividing the executions down into small components that could then be placed on various processes or various you know, network computers or what have you. So he did an initial implementation of that, but it wasn't particularly good, and it was only associated with a cognitive simulation. And from probably 2007 till about maybe last year, I was trying to crack this nut, which is how do you get... You know, if you've got eight processes, as you do in most modern computers, or four processes, how do you get the most out of the processes? Mm -hmm. So before coming on the call, I actually did a test associated with this, so I'll share the numbers. If you divide what is typically linear calculations, and you look at them in terms of each individual ape in the simulation, and then when every time each individual ape references another ape, you then divide the processing even smaller, you can get, on a four-core processor, you get about a 20-time speed improvement, on an 8-core processor, you get about a 40-time speed improvement. It's not linear. Well, it appears linear through that calculation, but it's not quite linear in terms of the number of processors because what you have is you have short processors and long processors. So how's, what's this got to do with philosophy, you might ask? Well, <laughs> historically, uh, artificial life software, and this is this whole notion of uh, von Neumann computing and everything being kind of represented in kind of step calculations. So every time you do the same step calculations, you get the same results. And all mm-hmm. these kind of ideas have been relatively central. I think you appeared on a, a podcast that I recorded where this actually became quite a heated discussion. Because at the yes. time, I knew the work that Intel had already done with Noble Ape, although I wasn't completely up to speed with it. And I realized that if you eliminated some of these aspects of certainty, mm-hmm. you could get amazing processing power. Mm-hmm. So the philosophical dilemma that I have with Noble Ape currently is that when you break <laughs> these things into little atoms, they mm-hmm. can be calculated at the same time. In fact, things that have historically been calculated after other things can be calculated before, and it doesn't matter. So you have this kind of localized idea that it's all coherent and everything's being processed, but you lose the element of order. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a particularly problematic point, although it caused a number of concerns in the discussion we had about four or five years ago. But mm-hmm. I think it makes a very interesting point of analysis associated with kind of big R reality. Mm-hmm. Because our perception of big R reality is that we have all the stuff that's going on in kind of linear fashion, but we also have this notion of causation, which is curious when you start to think of it in these two ways. It's almost like a... Um, a photon has wave-like and particle-like properties. Mm-hmm. What we want from reality is both parallel and also causal effects. Uh-huh. And I think it's interesting in simulation terms that when you lose the uh, reproducibility that you once had, it's almost like you are free to actually do these simulations uh, more in the light of the way things are in the bigger real world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's messier, not quite as simple. It's interesting because there's, in parallel to this, funnily enough, there's a um, movement in computing associated with um, functional programming and reactive programming. Mm-hmm. And what that is is exactly this phenomena, as I've done with Noble Ape. You divide things into their kind of rawest elements and then you spread them out on these massive, you know, Amazon clouds and you get amazingly fast processing power without this nature of kind of causal surety in the, in the step. But you are in a domain where that doesn't matter because you're processing so much data that, you know, the ability to have, you know, this kind of causal surety that you would have in standard serial computing is no longer applicable. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the Noble Ape, the, the distinction is between whether you're doing it 
serially or um, in parallel. Is that right? Something like that, but it's a bit uh more... So that's kind of... They're still two old computing terms of like Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. What Mm -hmm. you need to think is not even in parallel anymore, but things have just been viscerated and divided where... So if things take slightly longer, Uh then they will be slowed down naturally by this process because the things that are shorter will be optimised to... I mean, it's a bit like a road. If you had a four-lane highway, then the slow cars and the fast cars aren't necessarily going to cause a traffic jam because the fast cars will be able to get through and slow cars will be able to do their thing. If you have an eight-lane highway, you have even less of these concerns mm-hmm. because these, you know, these independent parts can move around. So right. it's, you know, it's a different... I mean, it's very powerful. And the thing that strikes me is that the artificial life community... I saw one paper at the A-Life conference this year for it, and I put a big thumbs up on that paper, and it was rejected. <laughs> so you have this kind of traditional element in artificial life, which is always working against, you know, whatever the latest stuff is. And also I think this <laughs> is incredibly powerful because it gives you an ability to problems that would typically take, you know, days to calculate can yeah. now take, you know, minutes to calculate through these <laughs> kind of approaches. It requires a different kind of mathematics. It requires a different way of dividing the data. But once you do that, you get this processing power that basically the rest of the, I mean, the rest of the technological world um, that's doing anything, you know, that massively scaled is utilizing. And mm-hmm. it seems disappointing, I guess, that the artificial life community isn't embracing these kind of ideas. Mm. And why do you think that they're not? Is it just, uh, I mean, it sounds like you're saying the A-Life community is almost inherently uh, contrarian. Well, or contrarian, like whatever new comes along, they're already like, no, you know, on to the next thing. Do you think it's just, it's more an attitude or do you think they have real philosophical fundamental reason for not getting on board with it? I think what I found was um, an atrophy and it's an atrophy based on where bryology is currently. Associate, this is academic biology, mm-hmm. in terms of just not embracing complexity. And anything mm-hmm. that, I mean, the kind of calculations that you're doing here are complex by their nature because you're dealing with, you know, multi-participant interactions plus a wide variety of other additional simulation elements. So I think it's a conversation that almost cannot be had because they are looking at something which is so distinctly different. Mm -hmm. But in terms of philosophical principles, I thought there were kind of, I don't know, I mean, I've looked at this, I guess, for about six months now solidly. And the thing that strikes me from it is that I'm getting exactly the same, well, it's not exactly the same data, but it's data that's as good as the data I was getting through traditional serial or even standard linear parallel processing models. I'm not doubting the data that I'm receiving. Mm-hmm. It's just done in a different order, which means the causation elements, which I probably should look at more, are, you know, not in the same order that they would be if it was serialized. Uh-huh. But it makes me think also about um, observed reality. And there are many different models within observed reality um, that interest me. But one of them is associated with removing discrete time. You can, through calculus, remove the notion of discrete time. If you're familiar with um, the game of life, uh-huh. there was an implementation maybe four years ago. In fact, I have the interview audio in the bio to feed with a fellow who had done um, 
rather than taking discrete cells, he had um, used calculus to create infinite cells. And what he ended up with, I'm not sure if you saw it, was these kind of oil-like blobs which moved around with the original um, Game of Life cell rules, but in calculus that had eliminated the cell walls and made them discrete entities. How interesting. No, I don't remember that about it at all. So that would have been, it's probably one of the last, I don't know, it would have been probably 2011, maybe 2012. The fellow Mm. asked for me to give him a list of questions that he would then respond to. English was not his first language. He was also completely overwhelmed by the response that he received and having put this YouTube video out maybe six months earlier, decided that he wasn't going to continue to pursue this development because the contact was too overwhelming for him. Wow. Um, but I've always thought that the same existed in time-based simulations, that you can mm-hmm. actually reduce it down. And I've had a conversation, at least one, in the Biota uh, feed with Jeffrey Ventrella on this. Causation is a relatively central tenet to most, you know, most metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Or at least uh, either a rejection of causation or some interpolation that presents causation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this allows you to also give the approximation that we are without free will that many have mm-hmm. done too. But if you look at these kind of simulations, in particular the fact that there is no, on, on a very fundamental mm-hmm. level, there is no kind of control in the order, which in itself breeds a kind of chaos... Mm-hmm. It, I find it very interesting that this analysis could be used to, I guess determinism is the terminology, that this is an assault on determinism because it breaks down the linear perception of causation. You can make a simulation that either makes time discrete or makes time continuous and essentially changes your sense of reality. And then the philosophical question is, what is, which is the quote, real reality, right? So, um, with geometry, you can show that there are, you know, there are 16 dimensions to space or something like that, right? Physicists can quote, prove that there are that many dimensions to space, but we only experience four. So which is the real reality? That's the philosophical question. I guess my concern is that there's been a there's a kind of neo-determinism that has come through recently, mm-hmm. and uh, Sam Harris talks about it occasionally. But this notion that there are a series of kind of causal real-world descriptions and then therefore determinism. And I think the thing that interests me through this simulation idea is mm-hmm. that if if there are so many things in parallel that are causally independent... But then we establish through this causation, through a kind of weak philosophical analysis, then determinism obviously follows through. But if you actually start exploring what extreme parallelization means in terms of predictability and in terms of kind of micro-interactions, then determinism is on pretty you know, shoddy ground. And I find it very curious that there's a new a new kind of deterministic view that's particularly coming through, I guess, what I'd call the radical atheist community now. It's almost an extreme kind of misinterpretation of science with a little bit of first-year philosophy, therefore determinism. <laughs> hmm. And I think simula- well, certainly my experience with simulation flies in the face of that, particularly associated with notions of surety. Mm-hmm. How so? Well, I mean, restating the point again, 
within simple simulation constraints over how many processes I want to throw at a problem, mm -hmm. I the more parallelism in the simulated environment, the less surety that I can give to the environment. But I think this mm -hmm. actually gives a good real-world description yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. And through that, what has philosophically been called determinism seems to be on relatively shoddy ground, at least. Mm. Well, I guess I come to this because Kant had probably too much of an influence on me, and that kind of spiralled me. Mm -hmm. Although I kind of grabbed hold of Bertrand Russell at some stage, that kind of spiralled me into, you know, the whole um, ability to, you know, the resolution of perception, basically. The ability to come to a realisation that... We do have limits to these things, and these yeah. limits are very rarely, you know, discussed, except in the yeah. development of early quantum mechanics. But certainly yeah. none of the, you know, present-day scientists refer to Kant in their general discussion. Well, some do. I mean, not so much in traditional science. Um, I'm trying to think of any examples. But he does come up in cognitive science mm -hmm. because of his work looking at you know, the categories of the mind, the categories of experience. But I found I always got in trouble when I tried to use Kant in my own writing about cognitive science. Always um, somebody's quick to say, you've misunderstood Kant or you're misrepresenting Kant. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I, I don't know why that is, because it's, it is strange that, that someone should think they, you know, have ownership of a philosopher's ideas because they can, of course, be interpreted many ways. Sure. But, you know, since I was always already thinking in terms of the mind and experience and, um, reality is a combination of the two and those sorts of things. I interpreted Kant one way, but it's really, he's a really, really difficult philosopher to use because you, I feel like, always run into trouble with, you know, somebody who thinks that they understand him more deeply than you do or something like that. But uh, he certainly gets into those notions of the the mind is structured a certain way, the universe is structured a certain way, and that's why we experience reality the way we do, and we can't experience it differently. And I think all of that is true at a, you know, at a very deep, fundamental metaphysical picture of reality. I think all of that is true, which kind of brings you back to that question of, you know, you can make a simulation that makes reality seem this way or look that way. And then there's the reality that we experience and which one is more real or more true. Well, I've, I've always thought of, I mean, although I talk about it flippantly, I always think of simulation as a tool. Mm -hmm. I mean, simulation gives you an ability to start with sometimes things that you have control over, but rarely in interesting simulations will you start with things that you have control over, and then just see what emerges from that. Mm -hmm. So you can you can write a simulation in a wide variety of different ways, and it will give you different modes of analysis. And certainly this was something that I tried to embody, at least in the early part of Noble Eight, was making sure that to the letter, wherever possible, I was sticking with what a particular philosopher said and then could write a simulation in a completely different mode. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, Russell's logical atomism created a very simple simulation that people could see and you could kind of point to various bits and pieces. But um, as soon as you started to look at the boundaries of perception, and I guess, my, you're right, there's a lot to Kant, and perhaps 
people focus on their own favorite section. So perhaps, yeah. perhaps the criticism that you didn't know, you didn't know can't like the other person you can't was probably could easily have been measured by saying, well, actually, you probably just like different parts of can't than I like. And the gravity that you put on certain parts of can't, I may not yeah. put on certain parts of can't. But yes, that does seem like right. a very strange criticism. Well, I mean, that's certainly my, that always was my approach in philosophy because I mean there's you know and then it, Kant wrote so much stuff about ethics I had an entire class mm-hmm. in college undergraduate Kant's moral philosophy Certainly. you know and that's a whole part of his canon is just ethics and and to me uh just because I didn't you know work in ethics it's not as interesting I liked much more his his metaphysics but he um I think he's one that you can't, I, I've certainly gotten in trouble for trying to use him here and there mm. as it kind of w- works with whatever point I'm trying to make in cognitive science, where maybe you can get away with that with some philosophers, but he seems like the one where you don't want to try to do that with a serious analytical philosopher in the room, <laughs> mm. you know, but. Well, um, I mean, certainly he was, he was, I don't know if he is presently, I doubt it, but when you mm. look at the early Creators of quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. um, you know, Bohr, uh, Feynman, I mean, all these kind of folk, um, they all had studied Kant, some mm. more intimately than others, but their personal writings and correspondence, which is a book, unfortunately, that I lost when I moved from Australia, was oh. a very inspirational book for me. It was a little yellow book that had their personal writings, um, I don't think specifically associated with Kant. There's a lot of other stuff. They talked about baseball and other things. Wow. <laughs> Kant did make a solid, and it made me realize that if you learnt Kant in school, mm-hmm. you'd probably have a very different relationship to Kant than if you learnt Kant at university or as your, uh, mm. your academic sparring partner points out, you know, yeah. had some intimacy with Kant through university. And the way yeah. that they used it was in a very applied fashion, but very interesting associated with shaping because the quantum mm. mechanics is this notion of quanta. It's this notion that there are discrete quantities within these things, although there are wave functions, all these other things, there are actual steps. And mm-hmm. these quanta are based on, in large part, Kantian ideas of the resolution of perception. And mm. to see this written out extensively, and men who I guess were in their 20s at the time, but really creating the bedrock for something that we haven't seen any, uh, you know, any Kuhnian paradigm shifts in, and certainly in my lifetime, we may not see mm. in, you know, your son's lifetime or those that follow. Mm. But it was fascinating. And that, I guess there's an applied version of Kant, which probably relates to how he was taught in German schools, or at least these kind of ideas. Yeah. And the thing that I returned to was not his uh, ethics, but his aesthetics. The notion uh, of the sublime and the effect of the sublime is something that whenever I see like a large rock formation or a big and beautiful tree, I like going and spending some kind of Kantian sublime time with, with the particular entity. And it also, it's very, I mean, if, if Kant had come after Darwin, I'm mm. sure he would have embodied some of the kind of simian protocol in, uh, in some of his writing. I mean, he really, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I can't say enough about, uh, Kant as a, as a thinker and an influence. See, that's a perfect example because his aesthetics, that too, and I steered away from that mm-hmm. class in graduate school because that was a bear. You read the third critique, mm-hmm. right? The critique of pure reason. Mm-hmm. 
which is notoriously his most difficult, yeah, challenging CPR for a reason, right? Right, exactly. And you you steer clear of it. Although, I mean, at the same time, I was studying Heidegger, so mm-hmm. which isn't you know that much sure. simpler. But, but yeah, the his cons aesthetics, that whole part of his work is something that I am completely unfamiliar with. Uh-huh. And yeah, I mean, he just. He really did it all. But I think you're probably right that maybe he was such an important figure that maybe they, you know, German educational system kind of got, you know, fed, fed him to the kids kind of early enough that they got some sort of fundamental understanding of him where, you know, I didn't know Kant's name till I was 20 years old, you know, and then there's a lot to catch up on. But, um, I think, you know, his distinction between the noumena and the phenomena. So there's there's the world that you see, the world of perception, and then the world in itself, mm-hmm. the noumena, you know, what, what it really is. So I can see that being um, important to sort of the, the fathers of um, quantum thinking, you know, like, okay, there's something more going on at, at another level of reality that we're just guessing at, we're just grasping at, you know, it's there. And our calculation, calculations kind of show evidence of it, but we can't see it. We'll never be able to see it. Yeah. So, yeah, I can see that distinction being important to kind of the genesis of that thinking, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the atomic yeah. microscope as a kind of resolution still is very curious. I guess yeah. I read too much science fiction as a child. My hope was always that... <laughs> And Kuhn, I guess, permeated my early childhood as well, um, in large part through my father's discussions with his colleagues and these kind of things. So I knew the notion that I was, on one side, reading the science fiction that these things would be happening, but also that the thinkers had predicted that this would happen and that, Mm -hmm. you know, things would get a lot more interesting. I I guess the the apocalypse, the, you know, water shortage apocalypse and (laughs) the great heat and these kind of things was what I got instead, but, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can't pick what wisdom you're going to get from books when you're six, unfortunately. No, you can't. It's, it definitely sounded exciting, but um, I just heard something recently. It must have been a story on NPR or something where they were talking about all these wonderful utopian ideas from, you know, the classic Ray Bradbury sure. type 1950s sci-fi and how, like, nothing's come to fruition. Like, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we, just, we must suck compared to what they where they thought we were going to be in, you know, the year 2000 and something. And what, what the other side of it is that so many things that we didn't imagine and could not have imagined have come about and they're amazing and incredible, but just not flying cars and, you know, um, colonizing other planets. We just haven't done any of that stuff yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess when I was here more than a decade ago, everyone was talking about the cellular revolution, a mobile phones with operating systems and these kind of things. It took about eight to ten years to be, well, almost in everyone's hand, but certainly to get to that level. Mm-hmm. There are conservative influences in technology which move it considerably slower than it should naturally move. I mean, if you read, you know, more et al., you get the idea that things are going to be getting considerably faster. And in truth, computation, like raw computation in silica, is absolutely amazing. I mean, the the amount of processing that we now have at our, you know, 
hands is beyond belief, but we have no means to actively utilize that other than writing email or, you know, surfing cat. Right. So unfortunately, the software on this part... We can see more cat videos faster. True. (laughs) And yeah, now that finally... Even the people filming cats have realized what HD means. So right. You can actually see their fur now, whereas previously they were just kind Yay. of pixelated blobs <laughs> that moved around. But, um, you know, it is interesting, this notion of uh, futurism, which is something that I've yeah. thought about quite a bit, primarily because I, I've had a good exposure to futurists. Uh, yes. And I, yeah, I have mixed feelings about the whole profession of futurism. Uh, yeah, I bet. Well, you also think that a lot of these futurists are somewhat, ironically, outdated. Yeah, and quite naive. Um, right. I've been meaning to ask you what you think of um, Jaron Lanier. So this stuff. I've known I call him Jaron, but I've known oh, him. What do I know? When when I it doesn't matter, he probably calls himself by a wide variety of names. When I <laughs> returning to uh, our earlier conversation this evening, mm-hmm. I thought for a short period of time at least that virtual reality would be an amazing technology. Jaron Linier was one of the founding fathers of VR and would talk right. on all the things associated with how he would play these VR instruments and we would all be immersive. And, of course, he had the dreadlocks, so, you know, he had to be believed. <laughs> he had some we credibility. Were, I thought we... And I... <laughs> The thing is that I went and actually met with VR companies, and I met a number of really bright people in the field of VR. But the mm-hmm. whole thing went bust. I mean, obviously now we have Oculus Roof and what have you. But um, the whole thing went bust primarily because you had these futurist visionaries like Jaron and co, who mm-hmm. um, not necessarily made wild predictions, but just weren't doers. They were talkers. And being mm. part of a group of doers, the speed at which the bottom fell out of this thing was very swift and somewhat like, you know, obviously someone had cashed in somewhere along the line, but it just wasn't any of mm. us doing any development in it. Um, his narrative is kind of curious. I mean, I share a number of mutual friends with him. I've never actually met the man. Mm. Um, but no, I think he's... Um, I mean, he's done some raps recently associated with how this free culture is bad and we need to have, like, incremental income through all the stuff that we produce. And all these oh, my. Kind of r- oh, so he's getting, like, political and... No, oh, I didn't I mean, know that. In, because I know... Because I'm, I have one degree of separation with him, I know that as many of these thinkers are, I mean... Uh, as I call him, Ray K. Ray Kurzweil is exactly the same. They're now in the kind of 50s, 60s. They're, you know, they're in this kind of period of malaise. Look, I'm feeling it in my late 30s, so don't get me wrong. I feel a period of malaise coming on as well. And the whole, yeah, it's, it's kind of strange that people can continue to be futurists indefinitely. It's not yeah. that the predictions that they make are bad. It's just that people don't go and talk to technologists in these circumstances. So the technology is distinctly different to what the futurists say. And there's very yeah. rarely realignment where people will actually reach out. Because I guess I don't have dreadlocks, you see. So, I mean, they're not well, going to come to me. <laughs> now you sound like my brother. Well, what I, what I think is unique about him is that um, given his background 
as one of the developers of virtual reality. No, he was just a talker. I mean, let, let's be honest here. Really? I, I thought don't think he, he has. I mean, aside from interacting with his instruments and stuff, I don't know. He may hold patents I've never seen. But he wasn't one of the people who actually created the groundwork for VR. He was just the one who appeared in all the documentaries. He's definitely marketed that way, though. Clearly. So you could be right, because I'm not in that world, but I'm just saying that's how he's marketed. continuing. I'm sorry, I I shouldn't have cut you off at that point. No, no, that's okay. I mean, we need to set the record straight. Dreadlocks or not? What, (laughs) What is the true story? But I think what's interesting about him is, in his book, did you read the book, um, I Am I Am Not a Gadget, or You Are Not a Gadget? This is One the one where the... he was talking about incremental payments, right? Into incremental what? Payments. So the notion that rather than... I don't remember that part of it. <laughs> I, you know, being, being the philosopher, I took the big picture okay. away from it. And what I remember is more... This idea, he's, he's highly critical of the idea that computers will continue on this crazy trajectory of progress, getting faster, smaller. Yeah. He thinks that there is a definite brick wall. There's, well, there's he's a felt stop. It. He's felt it in his own career. I mean, this is the, <laughs> this is the nature of his experience. And I don't want to be flip about him. this. I mean, my feeling is that actually, <laughs> This is exactly the terminology I was talking about associated this with kind of natural down. degradation of the human body and the fact <laughs> that it creates this kind of misery. When I was. No, but he had, he had a whole complex and, and rather interesting argument to that point. It wasn't <laughs> just like he was having a bad day and he wrote that book, right? I mean, Continue. his idea is that computers have sort of a natural, like a natural shutoff mechanism where if they continue to get faster and more complex, they're, they're going to get so complicated that nothing's going to work. So it's almost like it's going to bounce up against this wall and then have a regression point where well, things are getting not better, but worse. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Mr. Lanier, as he did 15, 20 years ago, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I spend my days, I don't work in the server aspects of Netflix. But I have a certain intimacy with that area. And actually, I mean, I do, you know, I do have some knowledge in that area. Things are getting amazingly complex. Sure, there are, are, you know, I mean, not just at Netflix, all over the place, there are outages with this kind of technology. But mm-hmm. If you chart the movement of these technologies, and if you chart the complexity, they're not slowing down, they're getting more complex. And they're getting more complex at an exponential rate. In fact, the descriptions Mm -hmm. associated with how these things would develop are are not applicable to the present day of what is being done. The problem with Lanier is he doesn't go into these companies. I mean, Mm. Ray K at least works at Google. I mean, hopefully that would kind of rub off on him on some level. But unfortunately, Lanier has this kind of popularist view. There's this character Mm -hmm. called Magic Alex. Magic Alex was a friend, I think, of John Lennon's. And he went into Abbey Road and he said he could rewire Abbey Road Studios. And he created this wall of tiny little speakers, which he slowly soldered together. And he was a complete nut. (laughs) He couldn't do anything. And when I was 21, seeing Lanier doing his whole thing, Mm. I wrote that... You know, and they, and Malaysian magazine had run an article. I was in Malaysia. I just penned them a quick letter saying, you need to do an expose on Magic Alex and follow the parallels with Lanier. I don't feel he's a competent technologist. And I think it's extraordinary that within certain hierarchies, 
he's not... I mean, it's sad to lampoon the man because, I mean, huh. from what I understand, with one degree of separation, he's a relatively fragile individual who certainly felt his demise through the crash of VR. But hmm. whatever is going on, it would be far more interesting to actually... And the, the beauty of this, with Netflix at least, is mm-hmm. almost all the stuff that's produced on the server side is released open source. So anyone mm. who wants to go scrutinise what's going on with the complexity and the volume of technology associated at least with the company that pays my bills is um, is able to go and do it. And if mm-hmm. Lanier actually did this kind of analysis, which I don't think he's capable of doing, but if he did, mm-hmm. he would write a distinctly different book. And it just saddens me uh. that he's in a position now where he could actually gain some degree of credibility by doing some interesting analysis and actually writing more associated with what's going on. But instead, he writes these kind of popular things, which obviously, you know, appeal to folks such as yourself. Yes. And, you know, right. But they're not actually in any way encapsulated what's going on currently i mean it's not not really something i can talk to because how I, interesting hmm. yeah ah uh, yeah i'm surprised because i i would think he he's certainly gotten a lot of mileage out of it i mean totally, because i don't think oh yeah think the nature of journalism as it is today i mean when i was doing biota live even prior when i was just doing the regular biota podcast i would mm-hmm. periodically contact the journalists who are either writing associated... I mean, let's talk about the Game of Life, for example. In mm-hmm. 2011, a someone put up a press release associated with how they had created Cellular Automata for the first time and how it was amazing. Mm-hmm. It was a Game of Life that they had written in 2011. And there were oh, about 30 articles in mainstream publications, including on CNN, that lauded this to be the greatest thing ever, that, you know, the building blocks of life had been cracked through cellular automata. These were people, <laughs> uh, journalists, who were predominantly in their early 20s and uh-huh. just couldn't comprehend or write coherently associated with this. Through my time at Biota, I did this probably about two dozen times where I would contact journalists and say, actually, if you're looking at this, maybe you should consider looking at that. This is slightly more interesting. You've gotten a few basic facts wrong here. Our, um, our mutual friend, what was the fellow's name at Oxford, who wrote that chapter about how you know, simulations, reality would never be possible. And then everyone started championing him as, uh, what was his name? Nick Bostra. He, he, uh, wrote this ar- he wrote this article, which when you read it yeah. as a philosopher, or even me, like not even, a, well, a former philosophy student, you get mm-hmm. one view of it. And then people that read like the first paragraph and the last paragraph get a completely different view of it. So, Wait, yeah. was he, was he saying, um, Virtual reality wasn't possible. He was saying or... that simulated. He, he created a series of constructs which were very curious in and of themselves, where the conclusion was that simulated reality would never be possible. But that's such a broad statement, though. It like, was extraordinary. It... If you went through it and actually it... analyzed, firstly, he had yeah, a very I, curious. I remember seeing it. I don't remember he, it now. He had a very curious notion of like resolution. Anyway, I'll, I'll move on from you know previously mentioned folk that have had similar curious notions. But mm-hmm. he had this view, the ability to write a simulation that simulates a small area to a certain resolution is relatively trivial. It's taught to first and second year students of physics. It's mm-hmm. not a particularly problematic thing, and it enables mm-hmm. you to show Brownian motion amongst other things. I mean, very basic interactions in physics. Mm-hmm. 
he never, I mean, they must have just missed that. I guess being a philosopher, you never actually need to go and read how simulation is actually done. You can kind of postulate what simulation must be like from first principles. And that was, you know, the start of a series of mistakes that he made through this. Mm-hmm. Now, in present day, you know, people talk about him as being the champion of uh, simulated reality. Oh my gosh. So, well, this is, this is just, uh, and he's trained as a philosopher. Yeah, Oxford. Whatever uh, that Nick, means. Nick Bostrom, <laughs> whatever that means. Well, that's, that's very typical, you know, I think of academic philosophy mm. where you have, Philosophers of physics um, can talk about physics in sort of an insulated way that's um, not necessarily, and I'm not saying it's always the case, but not necessarily connected to the discussions or the insights or the breakthroughs in physics itself. Our favorite philosophy book, The Philosophy of Artificial Life by Margaret O'Bowden, has Uh a chapter associated with a fellow called, I think his name was David Kirsch, or Kirsch is his surname anyway, and he Mm -hmm. went to Rodney Brooks' lab at MIT, the media lab, and observed Mm -hmm. a robotic cockroach, I think, that Brooks had made. He spent, I think, about a month there just observing the interaction between Brooks and his team and this robotic cockroach, and then wrote, uh, what's it called, Today, Earwig, Tomorrow, Man, which I think is still one of the most interesting philosophical texts in this field because Mm. it is an applied philosopher. It is a philosopher Mm -hmm. who takes his philosophy knowledge and he goes Mm. to this place of discovery. I mean, you can talk about what happened to Brooks' work following that in terms of Mm iRobot and militarism and a wide variety of other things. But he went there at least at a kind Mm -hmm. of golden age in 91 and uh, observed this lab and wrote a chapter based on it. I mean, I think the thing that Mm -hmm. philosophers could really do themselves a service if they did something similar with regards to a wide variety of things. No kidding. Yeah, well, you're preaching to the choir. I mean... (laughs) Well, we're both on the right side of philosophy now, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, I've been saying that for 10 years or so. And, you know, the I spent the last about two years getting interested in forensic science. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a degree in it. I don't have my training in it. I'm not an investigator or a detective. But I did my research. I sat in on courses, short courses. I, I read a whole bunch of stuff. I talked to a whole bunch of people. You know, and I did my research and presented the first paper using some ideas from Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, and trying to understand how forensic science works from a Popperian kind of model. Um, It is a real science, and here's how it works. And I presented it at a philosophy conference, and I had somebody in the audience completely rewrite my whole paper. Oh, I think you mean this, and I think you mean that, and I, I... didn't you mean to include this and that? <laughs> and yeah. It's just hilarious to me because nobody in philosophy is looking at forensic science. You have law professors and criminal justice professors and psychology professors looking at forensic science, but you don't have anybody in philosophy doing it. And yet philosophers feel completely comfortable <laughs> saying, oh, this is what you're doing and this is how you can do it better, you know, even though they have, haven't thought about it for more than that, you know, 18 minutes you presented your paper to them. So it's just a very curious discipline that, um, although there are, there are all these subdisciplines, philosophy of X, a lot of those subdisciplines, um, are kind of fooling themselves thinking that they're really integrating with that X, but they're really not. And 
yeah, it's, it's frustrating. And, you know, philosophy of artificial intelligence or robotics is certainly no exception. That's why I actually like the writings of Rodney Brooks, because I think he's first and foremost a scientist, but he writes in such an accessible way that philosophers, non-technical philosophers can read it like myself and understand it, you know, get the essence of it, the insights. And that's, that's really a skill. That's so rare. Yes. I think, you know, and you've done it too. <laughs> I don't know if you could compare the two of us, but thankfully I live in a slightly warmer climate. So I think he's such a good writer. I, it's yes. just, it's hard to do that, you know, with any science. He's the best example I can think of from robotics. But, you know, anybody who's a hardcore scientist and, and generates the data and writes the research papers, but can also write for Scientific American and explain it to the rest of us, that's, I think, an amazing skill. Certainly. You know, yeah. So, Liz, yeah. I'm kind of out of topics to talk about. Is there anything that you wanted to, to raise, or should we call it a short one? I think we can call it a short one. I have had a really long day, and... Uh... <laughs> Ditto! Ditto! So, yes, maybe, maybe the one-hour format will frame these conversations going forwards, which may appeal to some listeners, may not to others. I did have one final thought, which yeah. swept over me through that period. So, one of the things that Heron started, well, he didn't really, well, he started it in name alone by handing out business cards with this on it, is the Center for Applied Epistemology. And it's something that I have picked up as a kind of anti-philosophy, it's not anti-philosophy at all, it's just about providing epistemology to the masses, or at least epistemological critiques to the masses. Ah. It doesn't yet have an online presence. I did purchase appliedepistemology.org, but I'm yet to work out how to actually take it. I can't believe that somebody hasn't taken that already. Well, someone tried to sell me epistemology.org recently. And they originally said, well, will you buy it for $60? And I said, oh, yeah, certainly, that's a steal. And then they came back and said, would you buy it for $220? And I didn't respond to their email. <laughs> like, how about 5000 I know how this works, and I'm not responding to any more emails. So that's who knows? ridiculous. Maybe someone purchased a flight of epistemology for $5,000, but it sure wasn't me. Uh, but for $60, I would have picked funny. it up. Yeah, but epistemology.org. I'm really, really surprised that there's not some aspiring philosophy professor out there who didn't snatch oh, that up. Sucks to be them. <laughs> so I is it going to be a real website? We're going to do pictures and bios and everything? I don't know how I will take it, but I have it anyway for when the, the mood approaches me. I have I have okay. all these projects that are just like back burner projects that I realize one day, probably in early summer next year, I'll just be like, Today's the day I finally get the appliedepistemology.org website together. <laughs> Let me at it. And then it just happens. After a pot of coffee. I think you need to hire a personal assistant. Well, this has oftentimes come up. I mean, this is one of the things associated with working with the artist a couple of years ago, was to work out whether I could, because historically for a short period of time I had a publicist, uh, and oh. that worked out quite well. I mean, that got me on BBC Radio, and it got me writing for IEEE. But you need to be in exactly the right frame of mind, otherwise you're just wasting people's time. Uh, you know, you've got, to, uh, you've got to be ready and on it. And unfortunately, as you've noted associated with work that you're doing currently, the work that I do doesn't always afford me like full 
cognitive breakthrough moments all the time. Like I've got to no. use some of my mental energy to actually, you know, make house payments and this kind of stuff. But oh, it's yeah. something that I've thought about a bit. I mean, maybe having a part-time assistant or a part-time publicist. But the publicity thing is important because, I mean, what yeah. the publicist did for me was to write a press release that I completely rewrote and passed back to her. So it was an interaction <laughs> of forcing me to do things. And I do understand the kind of yeah. disciplinarian nature of an assistant as well. But yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and then you get all, the, all these things that you have on the back burner, like you're saying, um, actually get done. Well, the I most mean, important things that I have currently, aside from, you know, maintaining a happy marriage, is um, <laughs> producing these podcasts for people and, you know, working at Netflix. I mean, I have a relatively good set yeah. order and the stuff that I produce is in the order that it immediately approaches me. I think an assistant would, as you say, provide mm -hmm. kind of stochastic are you, do you have this done yet? Do you have this ready? But I've got to allow yeah. for that as well, just to avoid... I mean, there's always a risk of kind of complete exhaustion where yeah. you just are unable to move for extended periods of time, and that just sounds horrible. So Yeah, yeah, that does. That sounds horrible. Don't let it get to that point. Definitely not, Liz. It's been a pleasure no. as always. Look, I'm expecting, based on the first recording, that we will get mm -hmm. extensive correspondence associated with this one as well so folks please i mean feel free to contact liz but contact me initially and i will present it to liz primarily because i'm on facebook so oh right and i'm not that's right so how can people contact me if they want to well, they can they contact can't. me through you. Or, I'm okay. sorry, they can, they can contact you through me. They can contact, they can you. contact both of us through Jaron Lanier. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's avoid Lanier. Anyway, so email me and I'll email Liz or contact me through Facebook and I'll contact Liz. And basically, I will be posting this on a variety of different feeds and the people in the feeds know how to contact me through the feeds. So it'll all work itself out. By the time we get to okay. about the fifth or sixth recording, we'll have to pick out a name, Liz, but I'm not going to commit yeah. to anything until then. Okay. And it, it shouldn't be applied epistemology, I think. <laughs> I didn't like epistemology as Very a course, cool. and so that's just going to put a, a negative paw in the whole thing. So Very I want cool. something more, you know, flashy, something yeah, glamorous. Definitely. Well, yeah. You'll have to pick out the name then because I'm not capable either of those things. So. Okay, I'll, I'll start working on it. Very put good. It in the back burner. I'll talk to you in two weeks, Liz. Yeah. Okay, sounds good. Bye, Tom. <laughs>